I'm going to invite my two very nervous volunteers up, <laughs> Jason, Katie. I asked them before the service they'd help me out as I get started this morning, and they reluctantly agreed. Uh, Katie, you can go ahead and stand over here, um, but uh, there's nothing to be nervous about, okay? <laughs> All right, so Katie, what are you going to do with your life? Like, what are you heading towards in your career? Yes, okay, as a lawyer. And Jason, what about you? What are you heading towards? Teaching. Teaching, great. Okay, your plans are going to change this morning, okay? <laughs> Pretend that I am in charge of your life, okay? And I am telling you what you're going to do with your life, all right? So Katie, forget being a lawyer, okay? What I want you to do, actually what I need you to do, is I need you to become a chef, Okay? And have I got the training program for you, okay? First of all, I'm going to give you this stack of books, most of which aren't actually recipe books, but we're going to pretend they are, okay? You have a stack of recipe books, cooking books, all the information you need to know about cooking, and I want you to go home and study them until your eyes fall out, okay? Can you do that? Great. Okay, as soon as you're done with that, I actually have a job as a chef already lined up for you, Okay? <laughs> Do you think you'd be prepared for that? I know it. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, you're perfect for this illustration then. <laughs> okay. What happens if Katie hasn't cooked anything in her life? That's a big problem, right? For setting her up as a chef. In order to become a chef, I'll take those back now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In order to become a chef, the best thing for you to do would actually be to get into the food preparation business, right? And actually get your hands dirty. Learn how to cook by cooking, correct? You learn by doing. Okay, Jason, got something else for you. You're not going to be a teacher anymore. I'm going to get you to become a professional hockey player, okay? <laughs> all right, so we got a plan for you as well. First of all, I'm going to have you go down to the library and get as many books as you can find on hockey. And study those, learn all you can about the history of hockey, how to play hockey, all of that, okay? Then we're going to go out to the store together and we'll get all the equipment you need, okay? Sticks, pucks, pads, helmet, everything that you need to play hockey, okay? I'll, I, I'll write you a blank check. You don't have to worry about money, okay? After that, we're going to go find a big chalkboard and spend hours studying strategy together, Okay, you're going to draw out plays and all so you know exactly where to go and when to go when you're on the ice. Okay? Finally, we'll get you signed up for the NHL draft. <laughs> and I'll say, Jason, you are ready. You know everything there is to know about hockey. Would you be ready? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you haven't played hockey, of course. In order to become a hockey player, whether it's professional or anything else, you need to actually get out there and play. You need to get out and practice and exercise and skate and pass and shoot and all of that in order to become a hockey player. Okay, go ahead and you can guys can have a seat. Thanks for volunteering. <laughs> but in order to get some experience, you've got to get good out and actually play some games. And, and the point is that we can learn in many ways through studying, through hearing, through learning in many different ways. But in order to really learn, we have to do. We have to get out there and do things. I think that Jesus understood this principle well as he prepared his disciples for ministry. 
See, it was Jesus' intent to mentor his disciples to carry on his work one day. He knew that his time on earth was short, and he soon would return to heaven. But he had plans for after he would leave. He wanted to actually start his church, to build his church. And he wanted his influence to continue after he was gone. And so he chose some disciples to do this. And the disciples, of course, had spent many months with Jesus. They had watched how he carried out his ministry. They had studied his ways. They had listened to so many amazing teachings. We only have part of his teachings. And they had it all, and they learned so many things. But as of yet, where we come to today, they hadn't really done any ministry. But that was all about to change. And so today, we come to a very critical passage in the ministry of Jesus in the book of Luke. And this is where he helped his disciples learn some of what it meant to carry on his work. And in this, we're going to see the heart of of the calling of any true disciple of Jesus. Some of the details of our mission have changed, but the heart hasn't changed a bit. So today, if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this passage is for you. Okay, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and it's on page 866 in the Pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible of your own. Luke chapter 9. And as we begin, as always, I'd like to begin again with praying. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that we would open our eyes to your majesty, that you would open our eyes to it, that we would see you for who you are, and we would see what you've called us to do as followers of you. We pray that you would empower us. Please send your spirit to work on our hearts, to change us, to grow us, and to equip us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin Luke 9, we're going to be right at the beginning of the chapter, we see a fairly major transition in Jesus' ministry. Up until now, like I've already talked about, Jesus had done almost everything by himself. While he was usually accompanied by his disciples everywhere he went, Jesus actually did all the work. He did all the teaching and all the healings and all the miracles and everything else that went along with it. But the disciples that were with him were never meant to be just along for the ride. Jesus had big plans for them. He had major reasons that he had them follow him. And so let's read this together, starting in verse 1, and we'll continue down to verse 6. It says this, And Jesus called the twelve together, And gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This passage describes Jesus' ministry getting exponentially duplicated. This is not just some boring narrative here. Think about what Jesus had been doing up to this point. Jesus had absolutely astounded people with his teachings from Scripture, his astounding teaching, revolutionary teaching, opening their eyes to God's Word in ways that they had never dreamed of. 
He amazed people with his power over the spiritual world and combating demons all over Israel. He astonished people by healing those with terrible, untreatable conditions, making the lame walk and the blind see, healing people on their deathbeds, even going so far as to actually raise some from the dead. They'd already died. Now, one person doing these things in Galilee would have been extraordinary and captivating. Now, imagine multiplying that ministry by 12. And that's what was going on here. Now, there were 12 guys going around doing all of these incredible things. This would have been surprising, it would have been captivating, really newsworthy. It would have made the headline news. Who are all these guys? But beyond the impressiveness of this turn of events, there is one clear mission at the heart of what Jesus sent his disciples to do. And really, the heart of their mission, the reason he sent them out is the heart of this passage. It's, it's the big idea, the core principle that I want us to see today. Okay, so that it's the first thing in your notes if you want to take notes, and it's this. Disciples of Jesus are sent out to spread the gospel. Just like the first disciples, all true followers of Jesus have been sent out to spread the gospel, to spread the good news of Jesus everywhere they go. We see Jesus doing three things to his disciples in the first two verses here. It says, read with me again, verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Okay, did you see the three things? He First, he called them, and then he gave them power and authority, or he equipped them, you could say, and then he sent them out. Okay, He called, gave, and then sent. The calling here was, of course, just a practical assembling of them, but it recalls the much greater calling each of them had already received. Back in Luke 5, 10, for example, we saw Jesus tell Peter, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And then when they had brought their boats to land, they, speaking of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, says left everything and followed him. A bit later we saw Jesus call Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector. He said, follow me, just like that, just said, follow me. And Luke says that leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Similar calls likely happened to the other seven disciples as well. The Judases, the, the second James, Thomas, Philip, Simon, Bartholomew, all these guys have been called by Jesus for a purpose. In chapter 6, we saw Jesus specifically select these 12 men out of the crowd of the bigger crowd of his followers, and he appointed them as apostles or sent ones. Each one of these men were handpicked by Jesus to eventually turn the world upside down. And there's a definite sequence of how things went here. He called, he gave, then he sent. God's calling and giving always come before his sending. Before receiving a mission, we receive God's grace in salvation and in equipping. Grace is really what inspires mission. It equips for mission. It empowers the mission. Is God's grace. 
And if we have been saved by grace, we've inevitably also been given the mission. It follows through. The word for sent out in verse 2 is the Greek word apostello. Okay, so this is when the disciples began their work of being apostles, being sent out by Jesus. Now, we're not apostles like these guys were, but in a way, we have all been sent out by Jesus. When was the last time that you were sent by someone else just to do anything in your life? Sent by someone to do something for them. Maybe your spouse sent you to the store to pick up groceries for them. Okay? Maybe you were sent to pick up your kids or your siblings from school. Maybe, you were, maybe your work sent you out on a business trip or a conference elsewhere in the world. Or on a big trip to some other country. But do you know that every time you wake up in the morning, you've been sent by God? God has sent each of us into our personal worlds of influence with a mission, with a reason, every day. What were the disciples sent out to do here? Verse 1 says that he called them together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So obviously they were expected to cast out demons and to heal people. Verse 2 says more specifically, and he sent them out, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now we're going to talk in a minute about their healing ministry. But their primary mission and their primary goal was to proclaim the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not an earthly or political or geographical kingdom like, say, the United Kingdom or the kingdom of Thailand or other places. The kingdom of God refers to the invisible reign or rule of God. So God sovereignly, of course, reigns over the universe. But sin has removed him from the throne of many people's hearts. And so Jesus came to restore God's rule over people's heart. If you call Jesus your king and obey him and worship him, it shows that you are part of the kingdom of God. He's your king. Jesus basically called his apostles to be circuit preachers for this kingdom. They were heralds, proclaiming the king's coming to reclaim the hearts of his people. Now, we might wonder how physically healing people had anything to do with this kingdom. And the answer is that Jesus had used all kinds of miracles on earth to point to the greater reality of who he was. They visibly displayed his power as God. They verified his truth, the truth of his claims, and they drove people to glorify God. The miracles really pointed people to himself. And we saw that through so many stories already. Whenever a miracle was done, what did people do? They were astounded by Jesus. They worshipped Jesus. For the disciples now, the miracles served the same purpose. Except that the miracles wouldn't point to themselves as the miracle workers, they still pointed to Jesus. And as they preached, the healings would confirm the truth of their message, that the kingdom had in fact come. The other reason I believe Jesus told his disciples to heal people along with their preaching was because 
All true gospel ministry is both spiritual and physical. It meets both needs. True ministry takes place in both word and deed. Truth and love. The spiritual needs are, of course, measurably more important, but meeting people's physical needs is vital to our faith. How could we say that God loves you, and God loves you, and we as a church, we love you, and yet ignore their needs? How can we say that? He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Ministry in truth and love. In essence, Jesus told his disciples to go out and do what I've been doing. It's exactly what he told them to do. Preaching and healing were by far the main two activities in Jesus' own ministry. In Luke 4.43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus was sent, and he sent others out with the same purpose. Luke 5.15 also says that great crowds gathered to hear Jesus and to be healed of their infirmities. So to hear him and to be healed. Same ministry. Now, Jesus wanted his disciples to imitate his example. Go out there, speak truth, and love people. I want you to notice something interesting here. In verse 2, says that Jesus sent the apostles out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. But what does verse 6 say that they did? It says they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. See the differences? First of all, Jesus said to proclaim the kingdom, and they went out and proclaimed the gospel. There may be slight differences between the kingdom and the gospel, but fundamentally, they're equivalent to each other. The gospel simply means the good news about Jesus. But the good news about Jesus was that he brought the reign of God back to earth. The gospel on a very broad scale is that Jesus restored God's reign. That's the gospel on a very broad scale. Now, on a more specific scale, the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again. But that is essentially the means for how Jesus restored the kingdom. It's how he conquered over the kingdom's enemies of sin and Satan and death. It's how he enabled people to respond to him in faith, re-enthroning him as their king. Differentiating between the kingdom and the gospel is basically semantics. They're inextricably intertwined together. In a nutshell, you could say this, that responding to the gospel is how one joins the kingdom. And when the disciples proclaimed the gospel, they proclaimed the kingdom had come. But this discussion, of course, prompts a very important question for all of us, for you this morning. And that is, have you heard and responded to the gospel of Jesus? Have you responded to the good news of Jesus? Have you heard the message that you 
can be saved from the death you deserve? Have you heard that you can be forgiven from all the sins that you've committed against the throne of God? That you're a sinner, but that God graciously and lavishly loves you and wants you back. Have you heard that Jesus died to take your death and rose again to give you life? He's invited you back into his kingdom. And if you've never done so before, you must respond to this gospel. Without it, you cannot be saved. And unfortunately, are excluded from the kingdom. You are called to repent of your sins, to trust in Jesus, and to live for Him. If you'd like to talk more, or to actually respond to this gospel, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Please come see me. But for all of us who have already done this, who have already responded and, and called Jesus our King, we are called to proclaim this gospel everywhere. It's the most important news in the world. We're called to proclaim it in our living rooms, in, in our neighborhoods, at church or at work or at school, on buses or airplanes, on, in coffee shops or in bars, on Facebook at family gatherings, reunions. Wherever we go, it's our calling to proclaim truth and to love people. We are all called to be preachers of the gospel, most of which won't be done from a pulpit. Preaching has really got a bad rap these days. I'm not talking about what I'm doing today. We've all heard people say things like, are you trying to preach to me? Or don't preach to me. Right? Sometimes we may even try to avoid this stigma and say, well, I'm not trying to preach to you. No! We have to preach! We're called to preach! And and, and on top of that, it's not a bad thing. Our culture has given it that that's not bad. You don't need to tell someone, like go up to them and say, you know what, I'm going to preach to you right now. No, you don't need to do that. But we need to spread the gospel of Jesus to everyone we possibly can. Nothing is more important than saving their soul. Not your embarrassment, not their possible offense, nothing. We believe that God has given us a mission as a church. And we hope and pray that you, as as part of that church, buy into this mission. We've done our best to describe it in the motto that Grace is the front of your bulletin every week. That our mission is to glorify God by making and developing increasingly devoted disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the mission that God has given us. And how do we believe we're to achieve this mission? It's going to sound familiar. By proclaiming truth and loving people. If you're a disciple of Jesus... You're called to make and develop more disciples, just like the disciples here. And you can do this by those two things. But just sharing the glorious truth of Jesus, talking to them about Jesus, and by loving them practically with Jesus' love, serving her, giving her, ministering to them. The disciples here 
in Luke 9 obeyed Jesus' instructions, as verse, tells, verse 6 tells us. It says, they departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Later on, in verse 10, it says they returned to Jesus. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. So this wasn't yet a permanent sending out. That would come later. This was essentially an internship or a short-term missions trip. It was for a season of time that he sent them out. Eventually, once Jesus left earth, they were sent out permanently. And we, as the church, are living in this permanent mission stage until Jesus returns. The disciples' mission, as we read about in these verses, actually seems impressively successful. Think about it. These men were not recent seminary graduates or or pastoral interns. They weren't Bible school students trained in Hebrew and Greek and expository preaching. They were fishermen or tax collectors or political zealots, mainly Galilean rednecks. They were more used to hauling fish and counting money than ministering to people. And as Jesus sent them out on this day, I'm sure some of them were quite intimidated. They were probably really nervous or flat-out scared of what Jesus asked them to do. Some must have thought, wait, is is that what we signed up for? Really? You want us to be preachers? I'm not a preacher. But there's an explanation for how these ordinary and probably intimidated apostles were so extraordinarily successful. See, Jesus sends out his disciples to spread the gospel, but he doesn't send them out helpless. He equips and empowers them in a way that only he can. Here's how I put it. The disciples of Jesus are sent out to spread the gospel with Jesus' power and authority. We're sent to spread the gospel, but we can only do this with Jesus' power and authority. Saw this, verse 1. He called the twelve together, and what was the second thing he did? He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and then he sent them out. Now remember the difference between the two. Power is the ability to exercise authority. Authority is the right to exercise power. If you've been with us lately, you'll know that these are the two main things that Jesus was constantly exhibiting himself. And now, as he told his disciples to go out, do what I've been doing, he also equipped them to go with the ability and the right to do what he had been doing. It's like the apostles got a big, huge job promotion in both the physical and spiritual world. Demons and diseases had to obey Jesus. We've already seen that. But now, demons and diseases had to obey the apostles. You realize how crazy that is? These disciples weren't divine. They weren't God. They weren't God's son on earth. But suddenly, they had the power to act like the son of God. They had the right to be obeyed like the son of God. Here's the thing, of course, though, that it wasn't their own authority or power that they were using. It was Jesus. Jesus just extended his own power and authority to these men 
for a season. Use them for his glory. Now, the big question going through all our minds is this, that do disciples still have this power today? Do we have Jesus' authority and power over the spiritual and physical realms? The answer is no. And yet, yes, kind of. It's a qualified no. Do we have the same level of authority that Jesus gave his apostles? No. Do we have the same power over all demons or to heal everyone? No, we don't. The apostles were a special class, as as the rest of the New Testament makes very clear. However, Jesus has given all his followers an amazing level of power and authority. Do we have some authority over demons? By the blood of Christ, yes, we do. Do we have the ability to heal people? On occasion, God does indeed use us in that way. But much more importantly than the miraculous side of ministry, God has empowered us to fulfill the heart of the apostles' ministry, to spread the gospel. He has absolutely empowered us. Has Jesus equipped us for powerful ministry here on earth? Absolutely, positively, yes, he has. Inasmuch as we are enabled to do, we should seek to imitate Jesus. First of all, he has given us authority to spread the gospel. He's given us the right to do that. Remember the Great Commission meant for all disciples that would come? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching them to obey. By the authority of Jesus, we've been commissioned to spread the gospel. Second, though, he's also given us the power to spread the gospel. Romans 1.16, another familiar verse, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If we've been given the gospel... We have been given the power of God for salvation. We've also been given the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Ephesians 3 says that we can be strengthened with power through His Spirit inside of us. Let this truth blow you away today, that we have all been given a great task at hand, but that we have been thoroughly equipped and empowered to carry out that task. And it's in this power of Jesus that we must rely entirely. The next point today is a bit of a restatement of the previous one, but I think it also adds to it. The disciples of Jesus are sent out to spread the gospel with Jesus' power and authority, but also in complete reliance on God. Jesus' disciples are sent out to spread the gospel in complete reliance on God and his power. We have to remember that we're nothing without him. And yet, with him, we have everything we need. We see this principle in the instructions that Jesus gives his apostle, the apostles for their mission here. Basically, he said, yeah, I'm sending you out on this 
grand mission of proclaiming God's kingdom. You'll be supernaturally fighting for people's hearts and souls. And then he gave them these curious instructions. Verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In other words, you're going with literally just the clothes on your back. No walking staff, no supply bag, no food, no cash, no extra clothes. Just the clothes on your back. When we go on trips these days, we usually like to make a packing list before we go, right? We just did this last night. We're heading out to celebrate our fifth anniversary together, so we had a big packing list. And we try to imagine everything that we could possibly need while we're away from home, and we make that list. And I adm- these lists can get pretty long. I admit, I personally pack like a girl. <laughs> That's just me. I also pack like a parent. <laughs> if, you, if you don't have kids yet, you don't know what a true packing list is until you have kids. <laughs> when we travel with two kids, our packing list reads like a short book. It's crazy what we have to bring with us. But imagine today that you're going on a trip, okay? And I told you to go on this trip, but I told you to scrap your packing list. In fact, check that. Say I told you to scrap packing altogether. That you're going on this trip, but you're not allowed to take your vehicle or a bike. You can't, you can't bring a backpack or a suitcase or a purse or a wallet. You don't bring any meals, no snack food, no money for eating out, no money for hotels, okay? You're not allowed to bring your toothbrush, deodorant, your your hairbrush, no credit cards, no iPods or laptops or cell phones. You can't even bring any changes of clothes. Put your shoes on, walk out the door. That's essentially what Jesus told his disciples to do here. Would it have been wrong for them to have brought things like this on a journey? No. So why would Jesus tell them to take nothing with them? How would he say that? I think he did it to emphasize the need to rely on God alone for everything they needed. He probably also wanted to show his power through their apparent weakness. Did they need lodging? God would provide. Did they need food on this journey? Of course they did, but God would provide. Did they need clothes or provisions or money or anything else? God would provide. This was a crash course in trusting in God for everything. They had the clothes on their back, and they had the message of the kingdom. And that's all they needed. You know what? That hasn't changed for us either. If we have the clothes on our back and the message of God, then we have everything we need for fruitful and effective ministry. If God gives us a mission, we are ready now, at this moment, wherever we are in life. Maybe not on our own, but in reliance on Him, we have everything we need. You don't need, you know what this means? You don't need a seminary degree to serve God. Okay? You don't need to be a pastor 
to serve God. You don't need to go to Bible school in order to proclaim the gospel. You don't need to be in church for 30 years to learn how to be a good Christian and how to love someone. You don't need to be some super Christian in order to be, in order to be used powerfully by God. Now, just to clarify, this passage is by no means a command to never use resources God provides us with. It's not wrong to go to seminary or to get trained in ministry or to read books. It's not wrong to use what God gives you, your, your home or your food or your money or other resources for the kingdom of God. If you're going on the mission field, it's not wrong to raise support or to get backed by an agency or other people. Now, those are good things to do, usually very wise things to do. But what this passage does do is it reminds us of how little we truly need if we rely on God. We trust Him. I mentioned our mission as a church earlier, and this totally comes into play in it as well. We're called to glorify God by making and developing disciples of Jesus, but we can only do this successfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're not trusting Him for the results if we're not relying on him in constant prayer, if we're, not tr- if we're trying to carry out our mission on our own power, we are destined to fail. Our job is to be faithful and to trust. And God will provide the fruitfulness. In verse 4, Jesus predicted that the disciples' ministry would be fruitful, that that some houses or towns would readily receive them. It's implied, he says, in whatever house you enter, so they get invited into a house, stay there, and from there, depart. This This is practical advice. It says, don't go from house to house looking for better accommodations. If someone received them, be content with whatever God provided. Enjoy that fruit that he gave. However... Not all their ministry would be fruitful. Verse 5 says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This is a sobering reminder that not everyone responds well to the gospel. Not everyone responds well. This will give us our final point today, and it is a very important one to remember. The disciples of Jesus are sent out to spread the gospel, which will not be received by or be clear to everyone. We're to spread the gospel with Jesus' power and authority in complete dependence on him, but our message won't reach everyone. And we have to accept that. Jesus knew that as the disciples went out and entered some specific towns or homes, their message wouldn't go over well. It would be rejected. Maybe some people would be too set in their religious ways, and they couldn't see that Jesus came to fulfill their law and their prophets. Maybe some people would be too attached to their sin, and they wouldn't want or felt that they need a Savior. Maybe some would feel that Jesus' feats were just too unbelievable. That he was either a charlatan, or a fake, or even evil. 
Maybe some would be swayed by peer pressure or by family pressure. But for whatever reason, while many people were saved by the gospel, many other people rejected it. Through indifference, through confusion, through opposition, many of the same reasons that people choose to reject him now. Jesus told his disciples that whenever there was unreceptiveness, they were to do this. Whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. In Jesus' day, there was a rabbinic idea that the dust of foreign lands was actually unclean. That that the dust and dirt itself contained some kind of spiritual defilement. So, when any good Jew would travel out of the country and then re-enter Palestine, what they would do is they would religiously clean their sandals off. Get rid of all the dirt of the foreign lands. But Jesus was telling his disciples to go and do this symbolically to towns in Israel itself. Basically saying, implying that this town is no longer part of God's people. So it's not meant as some good riddance. No, no, I'm sure that every time this happened, Jesus was deeply grieved. But this action symbolized that if they rejected God's Savior, God would reject them. It was a symbolic sign of eventual judgment. Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. It's also implied that if someone rejected one of Jesus' disciples, they were actually rejecting Jesus. They were his official representatives, and rejecting a gospel messenger meant rejecting the gospel. And we're now God's representatives on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.20 makes this clear when it says, Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So this should be a comfort for us, that if we're going out and spreading the gospel and we're rejected for that, we aren't the ones being rejected. Christ is. There should be no fear of rejection in our hearts, because we're not the ones rejected. We should fear for other people's rejection, not our own. Because God is jealous for their love, and he is just in his judgment. The final part of this passage, actually the next little section here, Luke shows us a great example of this rejection. So after the disciples departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel, healing everywhere, verse 7 says this, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And so he sought to see Jesus. This is speaking of Herod Antipas, the son of the Herod that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. 
And Herod was the local king over Galilee. He was, although he wasn't really a, technically a king, he was really a figurehead that Rome had established there. But this was the Herod that we read about back in chapter 7 that had arrested John the Baptist. Remember that story? The Herod arrested John the Baptist because he spoke out against his marriage, and so he put him in prison. Here we matter-of-factly learn that John was eventually executed. He said, John, I beheaded. And we don't have more of the story here. But apparently, Herod thought that John had been working alone. He thought, he thought that John was doing all this ministry on his own. He didn't know that John was just the beginning. And so when he heard reports of Jesus going around with powerful teaching about the kingdom of God and, and miracles of all kinds, dramatic healings taking place all over the place. He thought, whoa, deja vu. This sounds exactly like John the Baptist all over again. Did he rise from the dead? That's what some people were saying. Some people were saying that John may have been raised from the dead, or, or maybe this was Elijah, or another one of the famous prophets resurrected. And then, Jesus' 12 disciples suddenly scattered all over the region doing the same stuff. And it was like there was 13 Jesuses running around doing amazing things everywhere. You can bet the news would get to Herod pretty quickly. (laughs) But when Herod heard about Jesus, it didn't bring clarity to him. It brought confusion. And it said, that Herod heard all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead or by others that Elijah or another prophet had appeared. He was perplexed. He was mystified. Who was this? Who was this man Jesus? And so he said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And so he sought to see him. This was the right question to ask. Who was this? But we know that Herod didn't come to the right conclusion. Didn't get the right answer. Later on in Luke, we will see that Herod just actually wanted to see some cool miracles. He wanted to see Jesus do his little act. Worse, we'll also see that Herod, just like his father, eventually wanted to kill Jesus. Herod was a tragic case of being curious, but not ultimately receptive of Jesus. And as verse 9 says, he sought to see Jesus, and eventually he would get the chance to see him. But he never saw him for who he really was. All the rumors of who Jesus was, John the Baptist, Elijah, a different prophet, they were all wrong. Jesus was so much more than these. He was God's chosen one, the Messiah, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He was the chosen Redeemer. He was the Savior, and He was the King. He was the one who embodied the Gospel and the one who would usher in God's kingdom. Notice that when verse 6 says the disciples went everywhere preaching the gospel, what did Herod hear about? After all this was going on, it says Herod heard about Jesus. Verse 9, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? 
So they preached the gospel. Herod heard about Jesus. That's key. Jesus was actually the gospel. He embodied it. Spreading the gospel was spreading Jesus. And if today you're confused about what it means for you as a follower of Christ to spread the gospel, it's that simple. It's spreading the news about Jesus. Talking about it. Talking about who he is. What he's done. What, what he did in history and dying and rising again. And what he's done for you. To change your heart. It's that simple. As you leave here today, may not be apostles, but if you've believed, you are sent out. The gospel still needs spreading because there are still multitudes who need it desperately. Your friends, your family, your circle of influence. And take heart. You've been sent out. You don't leave here alone. God's spirit now dwells inside of us. Like the disciples, you have the clothes on your back and you got the message of the kingdom. You've got all you need. And the results of this will be some will, of course, be wonderfully saved. Others will be perplexed, like Herod was here. Some may even become hostile. But if we are faithful in pointing to Jesus, we will see God's kingdom extended through our influence, all to the glory of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like I prayed earlier, I pray that you would empower us now. We know that you already have in sending your spirit to live inside of us, but I pray for a special empowering and equipping that we would feel and know that you have sent us as your ambassadors. I pray that we would leave here and know our calling, our mission, and how gloriously gracious you have been to us. We thank you and we praise you and help us to be faithful to that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.